Good morning and welcome to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. Thanks for joining us again this morning. I'd like to begin by saying something I said last week. As a church, we want to reposition ourselves among spiritual seekers. Now, we're not saying that everybody is spiritually seeking, but the amazing thing is right now in our neighborhood, there are atheists, there are agnostics, there are new ages, there are burned out Christian fundamentalists who are spiritually seeking. And so we want to reposition ourselves so that we can enter into meaningful dialogue with them. Now, at a time where we can't meet in person and carry on a conversation as we normally would, we want to keep that conversational tone going. And so over the next few weeks, I'm going to be inviting you to listen in on a conversation that I'm going to be having with one of our leaders and elders, Eric Helvey. We're going to be discussing our theological vision, what it is, the story we believe God is telling, and our philosophy of ministry. What, how are we going to embody this story together in this world? We hope you'll find this dialogue format helpful and that you'll be able to use them to invite other people, friends, family, loved one, into this ongoing conversation that we're having together as a church. Thank you for listening. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? Hey, good morning. How are you? Yeah, doing well, you know, hanging in there. Surviving. Yeah, surviving. Uh, how's quarantine going for you and Julia? Uh, we're, we're indoors, <laughs> like every, <laughs> everyone else. Uh, we, we, yeah. make it out to, we make it out to the park every now and then. So that, that's always, oh, that's, that's always great. Great. Especially on a rainy day. It's, you have the park yeah. to yourself almost, so that's, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. Well, these conversations that we've been able to have have been really encouraging for me, and I have to say that uh, I really enjoyed our discussion last week on the bodily resurrection. Yeah, right? no, that, was, that was great. I feel like it was the perfect place to start, seeing as we're moving into territory pertaining to the core beliefs of Trinity Heights Church itself. Mm -hmm. You know, and we did receive some helpful feedback um, from, well, from the congregation who, who listened in on that discussion. And, uh, you know, the initial idea was to kind of record it as a podcast and uh, have it be an audio file. But the main uh, takeaway that we got uh, was that people wanted to see us. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> be careful what you ask for you know you just might get it hey you want to see yeah. our you want to see our ugly mugs this is, this is what you get <laughs> in all of our quarantine glory right? <laughs> that's right <laughs> well um just to circle back real quick uh, to that uh, conversation that we had on the bodily resurrection i felt like there was one point that we left a little open-ended and uh, it's something that i've been thinking about a lot lately this week since we last spoke and it was this idea of a life after life after death, uh, which I have to say is already a bit of a, of a tongue twister, you know. Sure. So I was wondering if it's okay with you, could we just circle back and uh, rehash that out a little bit? So, you know, often you'll hear Christians talking or asking the questions, do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? What happens when you die? Which, of course, actually is a question that we all have, whether we hide that question from ourselves or not. But sure. surprisingly, the New Testament doesn't really focus on that at all. The question the New Testament is actually more interested in is, is not first and foremost in the individual's post-mortem destination, but more, where is all this? Where, where is all of this mm -hmm. uh, heading? And there's mm -hmm. this incredible hope in, in the New Testament that, that, that creation of cosmos will be made new, and somehow we'll get to be part of that. 
Got it. I see. So what you're talking about is a larger hope for the future, a hope that is, in fact, so large that it goes uh, beyond the span of, of even our individual lives and encompasses the vastness of our entire reality. Absolutely. Because if you, if you start the question off with what happens to me when I die, we might actually mm -hmm. start to believe that the whole story is wrapped around ourselves. Uh, right. and, and that's the only issue. Uh, but there's this, there's, there's, uh, you know, this vast story, which is bigger than, than any one of us. Right. And I think clarifying that is really helpful. And now that we can move forward, I think with that in mind, I'd like to pivot here a bit and focus on Trinity Heights Church itself uh, and our specific vision and ambition to be a place for people to connect and to engage with this larger, broader story. Sure. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had the privilege of seeing Trinity Heights grow from the very beginning. I still remember hearing you preach. I think it was maybe back in 2015 or 2016, mm -hmm. before you and Julia even started the church. And uh, I distinctly remember um, feeling two things. I remember about five minutes into your sermon that uh, my jaw dropped because <laughs> you were... <laughs> You were saying some things that I had just never heard said from, from the pulpit before, quite simply. I think you mentioned uh, deconstruction a few times. I know Derrida was thrown in there a bit. But, um, you know, it was just, it was amazing to me as, as, a, as a working artist in the city to hear uh, that level of, of um, philosophical discussion come from, from the pulpit. And then secondly, I, I remember distinctly, uh, I distinctly remember thinking that had any of my atheist or agnostic friends been sitting next to me, uh, during the sermon that they actually might have stuck around till the very end. <laughs> which is which is actually uh, amazing because I was more, um, well, let's put it this way, I was more, more long-winded back then. Uh, yeah. Um, you, you're, not, you're not meant to agree with that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, 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 I was more long-winded back then. But, but I, I, it was actually my, it was my first time, uh, very first time to preach in New York City uh, at, mm -hmm. at another, another church. And I, I think there's always a certain amount of trepidation when you speak for the first time uh, into a new or different cultural context. And it was That's certainly right. new, new for me. Uh, yeah. And I, I remember being told afterward by someone else that this is really not the way you are supposed to message or preach in New York City mm -hmm. and that I would have to find my uh, New York voice uh, as, as it were. Whatever. Whatever that means, right? Well, yeah, New York voice, that's right. So, mm -hmm. so I was... Um, I think especially glad to have got, got the chance to speak to you afterwards uh, and mm -hmm. that you, I remember you did mention how your skeptical friends might have responded. But funnily enough, I, I had a, a similar conversation with a friend who was also there that day who, and he is a skeptic and he had a mm -hmm. very similar response to you. So it, it was in, generally a, a sort of encouraging, encouraging experience. That's great to hear. You know, I guess with all that being said, it's no mystery to me that your vision for Trinity Heights Church has been quite unique right from the start. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to spend a little bit of time unpacking your thoughts sure. about the specific mission of Trinity Heights Church itself. And I guess I just, I don't mean this, uh, just to clarify, I don't mean this to become an intimate session of profound navel gazing or anything of that sort, but rather I hope that, that by kind of hashing these things out, we might um, open things up a bit and look outwards from ourselves uh, and sort of engage with some, some ideas that deeply inform us as a church. Uh, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with the idea that uh, Trinity Heights is a place that welcomes skeptics and tackles uh, tough issues head on. 
Sure, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about that because that is a, a huge, a very big part of our ethos. Uh, it's, it's not, look, it's not to say that there aren't other churches who are working very hard at this, uh, but it just, it takes different kinds of churches to reach different kinds of people. So this Absolutely. is just really how we're going about it in, in our neck of the woods, as it were. Right, you know, I know for a while the church website said, um, kind of under the heading as a, a tagline, um, skeptics welcome. Yeah. And I know that we've redesigned the website and uh, it looks great. And Mara, now- Mara did, did a fantastic job yep. with Jay and, and, and others. Yeah, it really does look great. And uh, now as we've grown as a church on the website, you, you'll see that that tagline has changed and it says um, a community of Christians and skeptics. Uh, would you mind talking about that a bit? Sure. Well, I, I think it's a, a more accurate description of who we are, right? Our, our community mm -hmm. is made up of Christians, uh, but also friends from agnostic, atheists, new age backgrounds, sometimes from right. fundamentalist, burned out fundamentalist Christian backgrounds. Uh, but people who've walked away from the church, walked away from faith, never thought they'd be back. But, but here they are mm -hmm. again, uh, checking things out. Uh, and at times, around 25 to 30% of our congregation would not identify as Christians. Mm. So just empirically speaking, you know, by, by counting, it, it's a more yeah. accurate description of who, who we are. Yeah, and let me just interrupt you right there for a second, because I do find this to be incredibly encouraging. Uh, I think it would be easy for Trinity Heights or any church for that matter to have this particular vision uh, about attracting skeptics or really wanting to create a community of Christians and skeptics and to add the tagline to the website and have it as a sort of marketing ploy, but then the numbers, you know, aren't even matching up with that vision. Uh, sure, yeah, and, and I think that the sort of the proportion or the ratio is, is you're right, it is encouraging, um, but, yeah. but it's, it's even more encouraging to me because it, it's not just a, a numbers game. I, I think more significantly, mm -hmm you have to look at who's really taking ownership of this community. So, for yeah, example, yeah. From, from, the, from the very beginning, from the start, I could not have got this church going without the help of various skeptical friends who, who've invested mm -hmm. their time and energy and talents in, in making this happen. Uh, for, for instance, like my friend Raf, who, who mm -hmm. he built our first website, he runs our Google ads. He, he helped me put together a timeline, would you believe, leading up to the launch of the church. Mm -hmm. uh, now he leads our AV team. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so suddenly we're hit with this pandemic. Guess who the first persons I turn to when, when I, <laughs> I need to move everything online? You know, he, you yeah. know he, he's the first guy to step in. And, and so the, the, the reason why he and, and others are, are leading and serving in so many ways is because they're, they're genuinely invested in this sort of ongoing conversation uh, yep. that we're having about life and, and faith. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose one way you could put it is we're, we're sort of owning the conversation together. And yeah. So, so what what we find what we're finding is that skeptical friends are inviting other skeptical friends along. It's, mm -hmm. it's not just Christians welcoming skeptics into the community. So we really did have to shift our tagline from uh, you know skeptics welcome to a community mm -hmm. uh, a community of, of Christians and, and skeptics. So uh, right, it was it was actually my friend Dave who suggested it, and it was a great suggestion. Yeah, yeah, fantastic suggestion. I think it really does uh, embody who we are. And I think that for a church planted smack in the middle of Columbia University, Barnard and Harlem and Manhattan and New York City, uh, it really does seem like the perfect approach. I know uh, from my own experience that there is a real need for this kind of community. And, um, you know, speaking of my story just a little bit, I, I grew up in the church. I was an MK. My parents were missionaries to South Africa. Uh, we moved there when I was nine years old, left when I was 18. I kind of grew up seeing their 
their ministry unfolds. And uh, I, I accepted Christ very early on at a very young age and uh, adopted my, my parents' faith as my own. Uh, you know, come full circle a bit, I moved to New York when I was um, 24, and then all of a sudden was just sort of smacked in the face with a uh, deep doubt. Uh, somehow the faith that I had been brought up with started to feel very anemic or mm. unable to stand up mm. to the reality that I was living on a daily basis. And it, specifically the reality of making paintings in a studio day in and day out in the city. And uh, to that point, I think it was really difficult for my family and I to find a church that addressed the aspects of, of the reality that, that I was living, that we were living together. Mm. And uh, for that matter, it was hard to to kind of match that up with the reality of any of my my other artist friends who I deeply uh, respected. And so, so this is you know what what you're describing is a really uh, common experience, uh, and mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people listening will, will be able to relate to it. Um, I've I've literally lost count of the number of times I've heard people say that they they feel this sort of this massive disconnect between faith mm -hmm. and, and what we might call call real life, uh, and yeah. uh, this 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 problem is obviously multifaceted and and it's not just one thing. Uh, there's mm -hmm. it, it, there's there's multiple things, and so there's no way we can address all of them in detail here uh, this morning. Right. But but I think it may be worth pointing out one 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 thing in in particular today. Um, and, and it's this, that there has been, I mean, just in relation to what you've just been talking about, yeah. there has been this tendency to see a sort of dichotomy between mm -hmm. the spiritual and the non-spiritual, to, to sort of divide life into the sacred and the secular. Uh, sure. Now, the, the first thing to note right there is, is that this is a distinctly Greek way of seeing the world. It has nothing to do with the Jewish point of view, which, of course, is the one actually on offer in, in the Bible. Right. So a quick example from my past, and I know that I'm not the only one who experienced this, but when I was growing up, there was a distinct separation of, of culture. Uh, there was Christian bands that sounded like secular yeah. bands or Christian yeah. books that kind of were the stand-ins for, for secular books. Uh, or, you know, in my case, as a, as a young painter, someone who was interested in, in the arts, there was uh, Thomas Kincaid, the, the, the Christian painter. Uh, you so, know. Uh, Painter of Light or, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I think Third Day was, was Pearl Jam or, or something like that. Um, right, and, yeah. and absolutely, this is sort of the, the, some of the cultural manifestations of it that we've experienced in our generation. Uh -huh. um, and so, but we can actually take this back to its sort of deep philosophical roots. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so there's uh, Plato's uh, famous cave analogy, which many mm -hmm. people would have heard of before, which says that uh, we're all in a cave looking at shadows cast on a wall. We're watching these shadows cast by the real world, the true world, which is going on outside the cave behind us. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, this, this physical material world in front of us is, is an illusion or it's a pale reflection of the real spiritual world going on outside. So all of this is right. a shadow show on the cave wall. Um, mm -hmm. So you can imagine, you know, if, if, we, if we take this view of things, it's going to have a tendency to really denigrate our world, the, the world that we are. And yeah. so, so, for example, your, your own experience of producing art, it's an aesthetic experience, right? Something that's so rooted in the physical and material world. But, mm -hmm. but if the material world is an illusion or, or a second-rate world at best, right, then, yeah. then your artistic endeavor, all your artistic endeavors, don't, don't really have any real, real value. 
Sure. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I always tell um, people who come to my studio that I feel like the studio itself is sort of a physical manifestation of the, the inside of my brain. So it actually are, it is, is sort of thoughts and ideas made, uh, made real or made manifest in, in, our, in our sort of three-dimensional reality. And I, I do remember distinctly as a, as a young artist having to come to grips with the fact that that's what it was. You know, the studio was a real place. Um, paintings are actual objects, uh, which, which seems a bit ludicrous or se seems strange, but, uh, but I was taught my whole life that the spiritual realm or the intangibles of, you know, in that, that we encounter um, were, were where all the true value tended to lie right. and, uh, and that the physical reality that we found ourselves in um, maybe somehow had less of a value or, or was less important. And, um, and, and this, this carried across specifically uh, into how I was taught to, um, to relate to possessions or, or, or objects. Uh, and I mean, obviously, as a missionary kid, we had to move a lot. And so objects and things weren't that important. People were the primary concern. But me as an artist, you know, all of a sudden objects are, are a primary concern because you're trying to communicate via these, these things, sure. these, these, these actual objects. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember really having a hard time coming to grips with that, that, that fact. Um, there was, there, well, there were two ways that, that a Christian artist could potentially redeem their creative endeavors. And that was by somehow making paintings that had a, a, a Christian narrative or were, were, were filled with a sacredness or a spirituality in and of themselves. And that usually meant that the painting had a, a religious theme in it or, or, or at right. least alluded to some kind of religious theme. Uh, and then the other one was, uh, the other way to to redeem your your creative practice was to somehow fill a need um, that that you saw in your community. So you would twist your entire um, your entire studio to kind of uh, engage with 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 people and and the need that seemed to be presenting itself. But but God forbid that you would just make art for the sake of art. You know, uh, paint uh, in the line of, of 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 Western history or art history or or, or whatever. And I remember thinking uh, with all of this baggage, all of this stuff that I'm now having to process through that, um, that it seemed like as an artist, the cards were just completely stacked against me yeah. and that uh, things were not moving in my favor, that I was already 10 steps behind and that maybe it would have been um, better had I not been born into the, the Christian faith so, like, so, I, so like I was. It yeah. would it would certainly feel that way, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think this line of thinking creates these kinds of problems. It creates it creates mm -hmm. more problems than, than solutions in the long run. So, right. so so essentially, what's going on? What you're describing is that we've got these two buckets to put stuff in. It's either the sacred mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. the secular bucket, right? So so yeah. what what happens when the church adopts this way of thinking? Well, mm -hmm. faith and and feelings and emotion and prayer, perhaps going to church. Um, yeah. Or services on a Sunday, you know, uh, evangelism maybe. Uh, mm -hmm. th these have, have been considered spiritual and they get put in the sacred bucket. Uh, and then you, mm -hmm. you have this sort of physical material world where your art is going on. For some reason, quite often, not always, but quite often thinking and the intellectual mm -hmm. life are put into this mm -hmm. secular bucket as well mm -hmm. and considered wholly unspiritual. Well, this is all very Greek or, or Platonic uh, think, thinking, if you like. Right. So, so this Greek or Platonic thinking somehow and somewhere along the line got um, ad adopted into uh, church culture or church theology philosophy 
and uh, and then all of these manifestations uh, of the, the the division between the sacred and the secular have been have been rampant ever since. Well, yeah, um, there there are there are these philosophical and cultural currents flowing all around us all of the time. Uh, and at different right. times and places, these things bleed into the church to a greater or lesser degree, for good or for right. bad. Uh, but yeah. but I, I think it's it's really important that the church at least functions in a way that, that shows that we're aware of these influences. Um, uh-huh. You know, the, the Apostle Paul, he, he talks about not being taken captive by vain philosophy. Well, well, the surest way, the quickest way for our lives, our, our way of life to get taken captive it is to be completely oblivious to these philosophical currents that are flowing all around us and then right. imagine ourselves to be you know reading the bible or, or doing christian spirituality in some sort of hermetically sealed vacuum but that that's that's never the case i mean it just right. it never is right so so it's interesting because you know there there was this i i think i mean maybe i had some professors that, that talked a little bit about this but it was almost like there was some forbidden territory right philosophically or or theologically, or something that these things that you shouldn't access because they might corrupt corrupt you or, or, or change your your way of thinking. But I guess what you're saying is that um, uh, it's not about sort of sealing yourself off from these other uh, streams of thought. It's about acknowledging the fact that we are um, we are uh, affected by them, and and then and then with with that acknowledgement, taking on a kind of cultural a self-awareness or a collective mm-hmm. self-awareness, yeah. uh, which which is in fact maybe uh, an even uh, like a, a humble position, because um, it's not about me or or protecting myself from these evil ideas. It's not even about my ideas anymore, but rather understanding that whether I realize it or not, uh, I am absolutely one hundred percent deeply affected. We 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 always yeah we always we yeah. always are we're never, we're always in a context we're never not in a context and that context sure. has been shaped by by multiple things including these, these different currents of of uh, philosophy yeah absolutely um, you know because other ideas other people have let loose ideas into the world and yeah. and and then and then and then we're left to contend with them and we have to I mean they, they exist just like anything else. Um, you know, it's funny. It kind of reminds me. There's this one scene from the 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 movie uh, "The Devil Wears Prada." Um, oh, great and, movie! Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and and you have Meryl Streep's character. She she plays that that evil fashion editor. Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. I guess the the devil um, uh, in 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 the title. But uh, Anne Hathaway's character, who's her assistant, um, comes in and she's wearing kind of crappy clothes, right? So. Uh, uh, Meryl Streep's character um, says, you know, well, well, why are you dressed like that? And then Anne Hathaway says, well, I don't care about fashion. I, you know, it doesn't affect me. Fashion doesn't affect me. I'm mm-hmm. above it. Hey. And she's like, she says, well, whether you like it or not, those crappy clothes that you just happen to be wearing today are actually the regurgitated ideas that have trickled down through a hand from a handful of fashion shows that were like five seasons back or something right, so right, yeah so you know and then Anne Hathaway is kind of stunned because whether whether she she she's affected by fashion or not she still is you know she she's, absolutely sure. is. yeah yeah it, it's just it's sort of it's unavoidable right it's unavoidable and and so I guess the same could be said for um uh well yeah high fashion you know with for us but also high art it, it, it affects us very deeply whether we whether we realize it or not 
Um, there's this trickle-down effect, same with high philosophy or, or, or high theology, to the, point, uh, to the point where someone like me at 19 years old um, comes into art school uh, in, in back in 2002 and then is immediately bombarded with feelings of guilt um, and degradation for just trying to be a, a good painter. Right, and, and I think, you know, your, your feelings of, of guilt stem from mm -hmm. that fact that you, you realize just in your gut instinctively that, that with the present set of distinctions, pro provided, of course, by these other philosophies, your, your yeah. entire life's work would be deemed secular. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, to, to make a, a more declarative statement here, uh, we, we as Christians, rather than trying to move aspects of things like art and culture and the intellectual life from the secular bucket into the spiritual bucket, Mm -hmm. We just need to collapse this uh, distinction altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Jewish view of things, and in fact, the, the Christian view of things, is that it's, it's mm -hmm. all spiritual. And uh, the, the Judeo-Christian narrative actually starts by affirming the, the goodness of creation. You know, in, in yeah. Genesis chapter 1, you, you know, at the end of each day, uh, it, the author says, and God saw, all the, God saw what he had made and, mm -hmm. it was, and saw that it was good. And then at the end of day two, it says God saw what he had made and saw that it was good. And then right. at the end of day three, well, you, you know, you get the picture, repeats it over mm -hmm. and over again. But mm -hmm. at the end of the story, in, in case you missed it the first few times, uh, mm -hmm. he, says, he says, and God saw all that he had made. So you've got this picture mm -hmm. there of, of this workman who's stepping back to admire his, his workmanship at mm -hmm. the end of the work week. Uh, and he says, and God saw all that he had made and saw that it was very good. Right. So, so there's this affirmation of, of the goodness of creation, the physical material world that you, that you and I right. have. Then the biblical narrative uh, reaffirms the goodness of that uh, creation in, in the mm -hmm. resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. The, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is this affirmation of the physical material uh, creation. Um, which itself anticipates yeah. our own physical bodily resurrection. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so urgent that we recover a theology of the resurrection, because it, it is, among other things, an affirmation of the world we are. And, and suddenly from there, everything is infused with a, a sort of significance we, we never knew it had. Right, absolutely. So uh, a kind of significance or a deep meaning that lends weight to every moment of our lives. Yeah, because... because but, because every moment may have a may have a future we mm -hmm. didn't know it was going to have, right? Sure. It, it, it may be it may be that each these moments that we're having now are a contribution to this new creation, to this mm -hmm. this resurrected world. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's this wonderful passage in the prophet Habakkuk uh, where it's chapter two verse fourteen. He says, "For the yeah. earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Well, how mm -hmm. can the waters cover the sea? The waters <laughs> are the sea, right? Right, okay. Yeah, okay, I think, okay. I mean, it's a little confusing, uh, but I, I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying that, that God's goodness will be um, in everything, essentially. So every molecule, every atom, uh, Habakkuk is just saying um, water is, is, is essentially water. They're, they're one and the same. They're together. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, in other words, that's how closely intertwined and, and uh, God's goodness will be with creation. That's how yeah. abundant God's goodness will be in creation, in, in this new creation, in, in, in this picture of cre creation is, is of, of the earth as, as a sort of a vessel for God's mm -hmm. goodness. 
Um, mm -hmm. So, so, so to, to, to bring it back around to, to where we started, a, a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of people's problems with the church and faith is that it has nothing to do with this life, with 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 real life. Right. But if we take this sort of fractured reality and, and allow a, a theology of the resurrection to essentially put it back together again, mm -hmm. well, that's a really interesting story to invite people into. Uh, and I right. think that, that's the story that I think is uh, allowing us to be a community of Christians and, and skeptics. Yeah, you know, I think there is a lot, of, a lot of meaning there for me with this idea of uh, redeeming a fractured reality. Because obviously the reality that we are a part of, um, you know, maybe... The, the, the initial uh, idea was that it would be inherently good, but, but there is a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And so this idea of, of, of bringing things back together or making them whole, I think, yeah. I think is, 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 is something that, I, that is incredibly inspiring for me. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I even see, I think, the creative act or, or, or making paintings as, as sort of a redemptive act or, or an act of sort of bringing things um together in, in some ways and that's something that we can un unpack later i guess all that Absolutely. to say that that we're all a part of um of of a larger hope and a larger vision that sustains uh us as a community and our togetherness uh and informs uh maybe even the the sort of day in and day out uh or, or the nitty-gritty of 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 our lives which which we've decided to to live in the direction of the the future redemption or or the future hope absolutely yeah no that's that's, that's right huh. yeah that's that's encouraging and uh i guess let's just stop right there uh for the sake of time and um and i know that next week we have um a lot planned uh specifically we have uh uh we get to continue this conversation so let's pick up um next sunday with part two of a community of uh, christians and skeptics Thanks, Eric. That, that'll be great. Looking forward to it. Yeah, same. And I just want to say a quick thank you to, to all of you out there listening. You know, conversations like this aren't meant to be uh, one-sided just between Stephen and I. We really want to hear what you have to say. And, uh, and we're not just saying it to be nice. Uh, reach out via um, text, you know, just whatever way. Yeah, dro drop us a line. Drop us a line. Yeah, yeah. please. It'd be great to hear from you. Um, Trinity Heights, uh, thrives when we're able to hash things out together and, and really engage in ongoing dialogue. Uh, so uh, we sincerely hope that, uh, that we can all talk soon.